0: Hello, Robin Papworth from Play, Move, Improve. Today, it's going to be a little bit different. Today, I'm going to actually share with you an amazing recording that I did back during COVID times at an early childhood conference. In this webinar, I was talking about sensory play strategies. I went through the seven senses and how we could use those senses in areas of literacy, numeracy and play to improve the outcomes of preschool-aged children. So in this recording, you will hear me sounding like I'm talking to a computer I do apologize for that at some points but it really is fantastic content that I would love for you to listen to and I would love for you to be able to access so enjoy the recording if you have any questions feel free to ask what's covered today is what is sensory integration why we need to worry about the sensors in our environment and how we can incorporate sensory play into your day and here we go so there's eight types of sensors I'm sure some of you may know I'm just going to talk about seven types of senses today. The eighth sensation is called interoception. So that's about the feelings that we get when we're hungry, thirsty, need to go to the toilet, those types of feelings. That's more of an occupational therapist, speech pathologist domain. So I'm just going to talk about the other seven and we'll get into it because I've got lots of ideas for later. So the types of senses that we're going to look at today and is, we've got sight, which we all know, sound, smell, touch and taste. They're our five senses, which I'm sure, and yeah, feel free to take photos of the slides, not a problem at all. We have five senses, most people know the special five senses. But then we have two special senses, which is vestibular and proprioception. Most of you would know those words. They've come out more in the last five years, which is exciting. Not many people knew of them many years ago, but they can really influence how a child learns and how they behave in your classroom. So a lot of the strategies that I'm going to give you today are going to really work on those two senses, and I'll explain them a little bit more in a second. So visual stimulation is the first one that we're going to chat about. And what I want you to do in this moment is to think about the children in your in your classrooms that may do some of these these behaviors. If we can see that a child is seeking visual se- sensation, then we can teach them in a way that they're already learning and in a way that they're already engaged. So what I look at First off when I go into a classroom is if I see a little one laying down or if I see a little one who's staring up at the trees or staring unusually in different angles, then they may be looking at different visual sensation to what we would typically be looking at. So this little boy here is just driving his trains along the rug and sometimes children can get fixed on the wheels spinning or they might like to see the next photo where there's shadows. They like to look at shadows. They might like to look at the wind chime that's moving in the outside. They might get really fixated on watching trees in the environment. Other children may also like to hide from visual sensations, So they might like to hide under, dun- under blankets. They might always wanna have their hat or their hood on. So it's trying to think of where your children are currently at in their sensory world and how we can help them. Funnily enough, I always tend to wear this unusual hair tie because even this is giving you and children visual sensation. Because when I move my head around, you're getting information even from the simplest details of my hair tie. If I want children to engage with me and I wanna get a child's attention, then I give them more visual information. I wear striped tops or I have a lot of clothes that have lots of different patterns on them. I wear crazy things in my hair. I also usually will have my lanyard around my neck cause that's more visual information. So if you have any children in your center that love visual information, then we wanna give them more of that if we want to get their sensory attention. Does that make sense? Sound okay? Probably already thinking of a few that are in your center already. With tastes, you might have some fussy eaters. Uh, this tends to come out, of course. Children can be fussy eaters just because of their age. It's quite typical, but you may get children who are more so, even more um, fussy. So we look at taste as a really important sensation for children. I tend to, if I have a child who's really fussy eating, so for example, a client of mine at the moment will only eat porridge will drink milk out of a bottle, and will eat yogurt, and that's all that they will eat. That would be what we would call dysfunctional. It's not allowing them all the nutrients that they need in their day. So then I would refer him on to a speech pathologist. Because while taste is a sensation that we all love, I love the taste of coffee for sure, what we want to make sure is that it's not hindering any child's development. So if you have a child that's a super, super picky eater, Try and chat to the family about the importance of getting them to see a speech pathologist because they can look further into what might be going on for the little one smell is a sensation that we often don't use enough smell the sensation of smell is directly linked to our memory system so for example I smell the smell of oil and grease and I instantly remember my dad I also smell the smell of lavender and I instantly remember my grandma and then I smell the smell of ginger and I instantly think about morning sickness. We've all got smells that will either make us feel loved and interested and excited and then we'll have other smells that make us feel nauseous and we don't like it. So children are exactly the same. So what we wanna do when we play with children is we wanna look at all the different smell options that we have and we wanna pick a smell that will engage them into the activity so for example i put rosemary and thyme into rice play i put lavender into our play-doh mixtures i put peppermint oils into our water play i know COVID at the moment is making all of that a little bit tricky so you may not be able to do all of the ideas at the moment but keep them in your memory bank for as quick as we can get back to it and use all those strategies what we sometimes can do with smell is we can even if we have a child who's having trouble separating from mum or dad at drop off we can spray mum or dad's perfume or cologne onto a handkerchief and that handkerchief can be sensory play for the child. So they can mum can give the child the handkerchief that smells like mum and then the child can then keep that in their pocket or keep it up their sleeve. Because smell really is fantastic for igniting the senses and making children feel comfort and making children feel that sense of predictability. So whenever we think of our planning and our, our routines, try and remember smell just as much as you try and remember all of the other senses sensations. The next one we have is touch. All of us tend to know this and we use it really well in our programs already. We have lots of slime and sand play. Wind is one though that we need to keep in mind if we have children who don't like touch. So. For example, you might have a child who doesn't like tags on their clothes. They don't like to be touched or tickled. They don't like when people brush past them and then you put them outside on a windy day and you have a child who is really erratic and quite grumpy. This is because the wind provides children with tactile sensation. And if they don't like tactile sensation, then wind can really set off our little ones quite significantly other things in our environment that that are tactile is the texture of the rug that they sit on it could be the texture of their lunch that they're eating it could be the texture of the shoes and socks that they have on so tactile is really important to look at if you have children who are avoiding shoes and socks or who are avoiding particular fabrics or they might not want to get messy or the opposite they might love to have slime all over their hands. And they might love to paint with all of their hands. So, again, what I do when I come into a space is I write the, every child's name down the left-hand side of the piece of paper. I write the seven senses across the top, and I put a tick, a, a, a tick if it's typical, if it's if they if for each sensation they're what we would expect for most children. I put a plus if they're seeking it, so if it's a child that loves to be in slime and loves to have their have their face all covered in mud i put a plus and then i put a negative i put a dash if they don't like it so then in one snapshot i can see my class and i can see which children would be loving to play water play out in the wind and which children would prefer to be hiding in a tent in a nice dark quiet space we can't always give children quiet dark spaces all the time but it's great for you to know and have a classroom list that can just explain that these particular children may need a time in the day where they have a nice dark quiet space or these particular children need time in the day where they need to roll around and be a bit more active than the typical children in your class. So that's what I try to do with all of these senses. Sound is... An interesting one so I want to share a little bit about sound before we get into literacy and numeracy so sound is really important because some children may be noisy so they might be noisy they might yell and grunt and growl but they might not like sound so some people get a bit confused because they might go well they love making their own sound but they don't like a noisy classroom and the difference in between those two situations is is their own sound is predictable, where the classroom sound is unpredictable. So they might like predictable sound where they can make lots of sound, but they might not like sound where other children are creating lots of sound. So when we have a child like that, what we recommend is we teach them how to make sound themselves. So it might be, as we've probably done a lot today, beating on a drum, clapping to the music,
1: But we allow
0: them to get used to other children doing that as well. And the more we let children get used to it and be around it, the more their senses won't be so overwhelmed by it. But it's doing it in that small setup where they know that music's coming and music's going to be noisy. They know that the music has an end time. So even if it's in 10 minutes, we're finished. And then they can go somewhere quiet if they need to after that. But it's just to know that some children can be the noisiest children in your class, but they don't enjoy unpredictable sound and it's getting them used to it bit by bit. The other thing with sound is that we might like some sounds and not like other sounds. So some children might like the sounds of music, but they might not like the sounds of birds or they might not like the sounds of the lawnmower going next door. Again, in that checklist that you have of the kids' names, it's just having a note of whether they're sensitive to sound or they're where we would expect to be with sound. So if the lawnmower guy comes and you can see him about to mow the lawn, You can warn little Johnny that the lawnmower is about to start and then we can just move Johnny a little bit further away so he doesn't get that overwhelming sensory meltdown. The great thing about sound is you can also use things like noise cancelling, headphones, you can hide under blankets and cushions if they really get overwhelmed by the sound. (coughs) Sorry, excuse me. Or the opposite, if there's a child that loves sound, We can talk into plumbing pipes so you know the plumbing pipes you can have like a little walkie talkie system they can talk into a bucket to make more vibration and more sound all these fun things that you can do if they love sound so if you have any questions sound is a bit of a tricky one but i'm always here to help but they're the main things that i wanted you to know today vestibular stimulation just pop up your hands if you know have heard of vestibular before is it a new concept have you heard of vestibular before no beautiful all right (laughs) got a couple excellent so basically the vestibular is on is in your inner ear so what i'm going to get you to do and it's super simple i'm just going to change my view so i can make sure we're all doing okay here we go is if you can just stand up from where you are you're gonna see just my tummy so if everyone's gonna stand up where you are here we go get you up and moving beautiful I love the big groups look at that off we go everyone at home or if you're in the center standing up where you are awesome I'm gonna we're gonna feel the vestibular system now so what we're gonna do is we're going to stand on one foot so if you can just stand on one foot See how you can balance. Everyone just standing on one foot, doesn't matter which foot. That's it. And then we're gonna stand on the other foot. Pretty simple, yeah? Standing on the other foot. Awesome. Now what we're gonna do is while we're standing on one foot, I want you to look up and down. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna sit back down so you can see. But if you look up and down, while you're standing on one foot, look up and down. Everyone's getting a little bit wobbly. Yes, excellent. Up and down. Very good. Awesome. Give yourself a clap. Well done. Give yourself a clap sit back down and i'll explain what happened to your brain just then it's pretty cool well done we didn't get any casualties so that's good if you sit back down i'll explain the vestibular system for you awesome (laughs) that's my favorite That's one of my favorite activities very good so what you what happened just then was your proprioception system had you standing on one foot you felt a bit of a wriggle in your ankle and you would have felt that the proprioception system was starting to shake in your ankle telling you that you're about to fall over. When you moved your head up and down, the vestibular system started to get stimulated because it started to make you even wobblier to make sure that you didn't fall down. So the vestibular system is designed that when I put my head up, it adjusts my body weight so that I don't fall over. When I put my head down, it adjusts my body weight so I don't fall over. It's an amazing sensation that we need not just when we're two, but we need it when we're 102. The vestibular system is crucial for our development, for our movement, and for our balance. So you all did a good job. Your vestibular system's working, which is awesome. Well done. What we can have is two extremes of children. I'm going to talk to you about my little boy, Hugh. So my son, Hugh, is eight. He, I have twins his twin sister in utero in the womb was able to be head down in typical utero position but Hugh when he was in my utero was lying sidewards so he laid what we call laterally so what happened to poor Hugh is in those last few months the really important months of utero development Hugh didn't get to experience what upside down felt like he just got to lie side lying in my tummy the whole time so when he was born I Ticked his little body upside down and he screamed the most horrible horrible scream He went pale. He went shaky because his vestibular system had no idea what I'd just done What happened long term for Hugh over the next two to three years was he didn't like to go upside down He hated to be rocked because that head movement would make him sick He didn't like to hang on swings or slides because every time he moved his head too fast, he'd feel disoriented and just nauseous. So he had a vestibular system that hated to move the head. The vestibular system hated to be activated. So he did anything he possibly could to not have to move his head. Vice versa, we have some children who love the sensation of vestibular. This is quite common for children who have autism or sensory processing disorder. They love vestibular, so they'll spin on the spot, they'll rock back and forward, you'll find them on the swing for majority of the day, their body is craving vestibular stimulation. So it's trying to find that healthy balance between giving them lots of vestibular stimulation, which I'll give you some ideas soon. And also giving them the opportunity where they can start to calm their body down at mat time and not need to be spinning and laying on their side and doing all sorts of things with their head so that the vestibular system when we think about it is it happens in our inner ear and it's all to do with head movement proprioception i'm just pop up your hand if you've heard of proprioception before you might have had it in a ot report yeah beautiful excellent we've got a couple Proprioception is the feeling of pressure. So I just want you, if you don't mind, just to give your hands a, a grasp. Just grab your hands and give them a big squish. That pressure that you feel in between your hands is proprioception. Similar to when I pinch my fingers from one to the other, if you give that a try, just pinching your fingers from one to the other, that pinching feeling is proprioception. If I close my eyes and do it, my hands, my fingers can still find each other Because of proprioception. Proprioception gives our body the understanding of where everything is. So when I touch my nose, the pressure that I create between my finger and my nose teaches my brain about where my nose is. When I pinch my ear, that pressure from the pinch of my ear, proprioception gave my body that information. So now my brain knows how far away my hand is from where my ear is. So proprioception is a really important sensation for spatial awareness. It's crucial. You can't have spatial awareness if the proprioception system isn't working properly. We have two ends of the spectrum here as well for proprioception. You have a side where we don't like to move because the feeling of movement creates pressure and the feeling of pressure makes us feel uncomfortable. So we prefer to just sit really still. We don't really like hugs because hugs provide us with too much pressure. We don't like to cross our legs because that circle time when we crisscross our legs, that joint pressure is proprioception. And then you have the opposite end of the spectrum where we love proprioception. So you'll see us rolling all over the floor, sitting on top of other people. We'd love to hide in amongst cushions and the cushions are squashing us will love to be bumping into tables, bumping into chairs, because it's that pressure that children are seeking all of the time. On a real end of the spectrum where it becomes quite concerning is children who like to bang their head against the wall or like to throw furniture or like to hit walls. Their Their body is seeking proprioception at a really dysfunctional level. So the reason why I like to talk about proprioception so much is this sensation can cause a lot of havoc in your classroom if it's not managed well enough. So some of the ideas that I'll give you soon are all around this sensation and we can share some ideas of how we can help with it. To give you an idea of myself, I seek proprioception, so from little infancy, as I said before childhood trauma. Proprioception makes me feel instantly calm. So even I at home have a weighted blanket. Right now I'm sitting cross-legged. I always like my body to be crossed. And how I get through my day is I always have a coffee, not because I love coffee, but the mug's heavy. So I love the heaviest mug I can possibly find. And I love it to be filled with, usually it's coffee, but it might be even boiling water, just to ground my hands and give me that weight that my body's craving. Other things that I, you'll always find me with and why I recommended Play-Doh is I'm constantly squishing Play-Doh in my hands because it's providing my body with the proprioception that it seeks. If I don't get proprioception, I get really antsy. So I start to want to wander around the house. I can't sit still. And I'm in my 30s having this situation. It doesn't go away sometimes. For some of us kids that become adults, it doesn't necessarily go away. It's how do we manage it? And what I love about working with children is how can we teach the children to manage it? We want children to be able to manage it themselves. So what I tend to talk to children about when it comes to sensory therapy is I talk to them about what feels good and what doesn't feel good. So I would see a child swinging on the swing, And refusing to get off the swing and I talk about the swinging movement feels good your body feels good and they'll usually yep feels good all I want to do is give them another option that feels similar to that swing so what it could be is I could take them from the swing to a scooter board and this time on a scooter board we're rolling around on our tummy but we've given our friend a turn on the swing. And it's talking to children about what feels good and what doesn't feel good. So then they can start to find ways to manage their own sensory needs independently. Some children who like to sit on the mat and they like to be all over the top of each other and like to sort of getting each other's personal space may need something like Play-Doh at mat time to squish between their fingers to provide proprioception instead of needing that, pressure from their friend to give them proprioception you can also teach your children to start to give themselves proprioception so even if you try it I sort of teach children that it's like kneading bread so what we want to do to our arms or our legs is you want to give it a nice deep massage like we're kneading bread and those children you'll see them once they start to do that to their own arms and their own legs their body will start to relax their bodies receive the sensation that they're craving so much. So, there's the seven senses. I just wanted you, if you've got a pen and paper, if you wanted to share it amongst yourself, just a quick one minute just to let me know what is a sensation that drives you just to distraction or frustration. What is what could it be? It could be some people, it could be mud, for me, it's loud, unpredictable noises. What do you think? If you could just write down one and then share it in the chat box, even if you can. If you've got a chat box, if you can just share it in there so we can see what is one sensation that drives you crazy. And even if you wanna unmute yourself and share, I always love a bit more of an interactive session. So if you wanna do that. Just a sensation that drives you to frustration or distraction awesome excellent yes fingers on a chalkboard yes awesome high-pitched electronic sounds yes my fridge does drive me crazy sometimes actually dust yeah awesome people talking behind you yeah sponges so like touching them when they're wet i'd love to know more about the sponges one knives on a plate screeching sounds, sneezing. Yes. Awesome. A lot of us are sound. Isn't it funny how a lot of us don't like sound, but we work in kindergarten classrooms. I find that quite bizarre. Inability to stop moving. Yes. Any sponges. Oh, wow. Okay. They're quite a weird feeling. That's true. Standing on a dry bristle mat. Yes. Awesome, great sharing everyone. This is fantastic. And Vel- yeah, Velcro, isn't that funny? But most of early learning resources are Velcro. So I'll, I have a Velcro one coming up. You can just ignore that one, that's fine. <laughs> um, the next one I just want you to do is now the opposite. So now, if we can share, what calms you? So, for example, I was saying before, a heavy mug calms me, Play Doh calms me. What calms you? <laughs> Wine, I like it. <laughs> Classical music, yes. Sound of the ocean. So that's in our auditory system. So when we're listening to music or the backgrounds, it's our auditory system. Beautiful. Back tickle, excellent. I'll chat a bit more about the back tickle one in a sec. We've got a lot of music. Awesome. Essential oils. Water. Funny you should say water because I'm my I always thought I was strange. I like to water my garden and then I like to wet my feet. And I thought it was bizarre for many years until I spoke to my auntie. She's like, yeah, she likes to water the garden and she likes to just put the hose on her bare feet. So it's whatever you feel that grounds you and makes you feel calm. That's awesome. Coloring in bean bags, worry beads. This is great. Excellent. I'll just go back to back tickle just for a second because it's great. A lot of children are the same. A lot of adults are the same. There's two sensations that are involved in back tickle. One of the sensations is touch, so tactile, and another sensation in a tickle is proprioception. So when we talk to kids about, oh, that tickle feels nice, we want to see whether they like it to be soft, where it would actually make us feel ticklish, then we know that they'll like tactile sensation, or whether they like it more firm or rough. And then we'll know that they like proprioception. Either is fine, everyone's different. But when we have a child that sort of nuzzles into you and wants that back rub, just, be, just try both. Try to see whether they relax more when you tickle really softly or if they relax more when you do more of a firm rub. And straight away, you'll have an idea of which sensation they're searching, whether they're searching for tactile Or they're searching for proprioception because our strategies as you'll see soon will be very different depending on those two very different sensations so there's just a comment here at rest time i've had a child ask for patting not rubbing yeah so patting could be that they like the the vibration now vibration is still proprioception so whenever we like vibration some children like to sit on top of speakers to feel vibration or some children like patting for vibration but you might notice something while i'm patting it's another sensation in there does anyone know i'm just going to wonder if you can quickly know what other sensation is involved when i'm patting someone can you think what other sensation is involved when i'm patting someone i wonder who's going to ride it let's have a try we got touch audio yeah auditory that's right so what you can see when some children like to pat be patted they might like the sound so what we would do is it's a different strategy again and then heartbeat as well yes absolutely so heartbeat goes into our primal need for connection that's a little bit different to sensory but definitely very common wanting to be patted is giving us that primal feeling of comfort the The sound is really important because then what we can do is if this becomes quite repetitive and if patting a child to sleep, for example, or patting a child to calm them becomes over the top and quite distracting for your class, you could try other sound options to see if it fulfills that need. So, for example, it comes to the time where they'd like to be pat on the back. We can bring in sounds of the ocean or sounds of classical music or sounds of birds outside. And see if that stimulates them enough so you don't have to be sitting there patting them all the time but where you can see it gets quite confusing is some people see patting as just tactile so then they try and bring in a tactile idea so for example they try and bring in a beautiful fluffy blanket or they try and bring in soft toys or feathers but the child is actually seeking the sound of the patting not the touch so it's really a puzzle that we all have to work out, and it takes trial and error because everyone is different, but hopefully now we've spoken about the seven senses, you can start to really pick at those behaviors and see exactly what they're trying to achieve. One example that I like to share with everyone in my sensory workshops is the example where I had a young girl and she has significant autism and she would pull her sister's hair at home to the point it was very dysfunctional. She'd pull her sister's hair. Her sister would squeal, of course, getting her hair pulled. And then the sister who pulled her hair, the sister with autism, would stop. She'd feel better. She'd be like, oh, fantastic. So what had happened is people had sort of seen her pulling her hair. They thought proprioception, which we would. Grabbing at hair could be proprioception. So they tried things like a trampoline to give her proprioception. They tried to give her a weighted blanket, but it didn't work. But we started to break it down that it was actually the sound of her sister's squealing that this brain was stimulated by so what we did instead of having her sister squeal is we walked her towards a radio and we taught her how to turn the radio up for those times when she felt like she needed more sound it took about three to six months to get her doing that independently consistently but what she'd learned to is instead of pulling my sister's hair to feel a really great squealing sound, I can crank the radio up to get the sensation that I need. So whenever we have sensory behaviours that are a concern, it's looking at all seven of those senses and trying to work out which one could be the one that we're really needing to work on. So I'm going to give you a few more ideas here. We're going to get into literacy now. This is the fun stuff. So literacy is, when I talk about literacy, I look at literacy in reading and writing. Not just reading, not just writing. Because what I look at in the whole realm of literacy, why we read is to get information, why we write is to share information. So this picture here, it looks like a scribble to most people, but us as educators and teachers, we see this as a story. We see it as a child trying to tell us something. So what we want to do with literacy is it begins with scribbling. This is something that I would love you to really get out to your families because especially even at the moment with COVID, COVID's given this idea to some families that writing your name and counting to 10 is a really important skill for school readiness. But scribbling, if they've missed the stage of scribbling, then we may not develop typically how we need to in all other areas of our literacy. I'll show you why. So I've got a piece of paper here and I'm, I'm gonna go back to the age of three. I'm between the ages of two and three. And I wanna scribble, because what I've seen is I've seen my teacher and I've seen my mom and I've seen my grandma writing on paper. And I'm two or three and I know that that's something cool and I know that it means something because people usually smile when I scribble on a piece of paper. But I'm only two or three so I'm typically writing it, I'm typically doing it in the inside, in the middle, straight up and down of my piece of paper. Typical for two and three. But then we get to the ages of three and four. What we want to see in the ages of three and four is you want them to start to be scribbling from side to side they're starting to realize is between the ages of three and four we're starting to realize that words go across a page from left to right because I've seen my teacher read a book and I've seen my mum and dad read a book so I'm starting to work out that things on a piece of paper start to go from left to right which is super exciting so I want to get away from drawing just straight up and down just random scribbles to starting to go from left to right Then what I want to do from there, because I'm now between the ages of about four and five, is I want to start to try and make some sort of shapes or some sort of starting of letters. So what I'll do there is I'll start to draw random circles. And then my teacher, so it's a bit hard to see on yellow, my teacher will start to look at my circle and ask me, is that a sun? Oh, is that a face? I'm starting to learn that my scribble becomes a story. My scribble becomes something. But if we have children who aren't encouraged to scribble at home and they just come straight into kinder and families are expecting me to write my name, the challenge with that is that the child has missed all of these stages of early literacy. They've missed the scribbling stage. They've missed the mark making stage. They've missed going from up and down to left to right. They've missed drawing really basic circles which sounds so simple but circles are in most of the letters of the alphabet. To be able to do a C, I need a circle. To be able to do an A, I need a circle. B, D, P, Q, they all need some form of a circle. So we've gotta go through these phases of what we call pre-writing is what we're trying to achieve. What we're finding with a lot of families is we feel the need to rush them to their name, so we rush them past this most crucial part of literacy, which is scribbling and just getting any mark onto the paper. One way we encourage that in the yard is if you have pen and paper or pencil and paper on clipboards and you carry the clipboards around the yard and you might like to tick off how many jumps a child has done or you might like them to tick off how many bugs they found in the yard. You might like to tick off how many times they've gone down the slide. What children are starting to realize is when I tick something off a piece of paper, it means something. It has a meaning towards it. Because why do I want to write? I want to write because I want to share a story or I want to give information. I want to be inspired to put pen to paper because there's a purpose to it. Where sometimes we have children who avoid this activity altogether and then finally get to school and they've missed out on the fun of putting pen to paper. They've gone straight into the work part. So they're really put off by it because they haven't had the opportunity to enjoy mark making and enjoy that early literacy. It's just gone straight into time to work, time to start writing letters. So if you can, try and have as many clipboards or whiteboards as you can or try and write on the fences or write on the chalk, on the concrete with chalk to encourage that mark making from as early an age as possible. That's where literacy will begin. Oh, hang on. There we go. The next thing that I really want you to want to encourage, oh sorry, I've lost your I've lost you on the screen. That's okay. Can you all still see me? Sorry, Galena. I've somehow. We can see you and we can see the I can see the image. Beautiful. Okay, sorry, I can't see you, but that's okay. I'll just talk to myself. It's fine. <laughs> um the other thing that we really want to look at is work meet the children where they are at. So sometimes we think of play or setting up stations as the child is now four, or they're now nearly ready for school and they should be now learning numbers or we want them to be learning from the ages of two to three and by the ages of three we should now be mark making. But if that child isn't yet ready for that stage, you'll get unusual behaviours like this picture. So this picture shows that a child really has been given a paintbrush before they're developmentally ready for that paintbrush what they've been given is a paintbrush with their hand upside down and then we want to try and get them to form a letter but their hand is in the completely wrong formation to be able to even form the number five so we want to meet them where they're at so this is where the piece of paper comes in so if you have a piece of paper i'm going to show you something i'm just going to exit out of this screen for one sec and i'm going to show you something one second Alright, so if you grab a piece of paper, if everyone has a piece of paper in front of them, that would be awesome. Excellent. doesn't have to be pretty, just any piece of paper. I'm going to show you what we do. Excellent. And we've got it. Beautiful. Alright, so... Sometimes what we we don't mean to, but we give children ages, say, two to three, we give them a pen or a pencil or a paintbrush to have a little bit of a play around. And that's that's fine if it's just for a play. Then sometimes families at home pressure children to pick up a pen or a pencil before their hand is ready. And then we get all sorts of unusual hand positions. You've seen some like this. You might have seen it in between the fingers, unusual. You might have seen it with a five-year-old trying to use the full palm what we're looking at is the hand isn't yet developmentally ready to deal with a pen pens and pencils and paintbrushes are really quite complex it's obviously a whole other fine motor session but this is just a really brief example we don't want to encourage pen use until we actually know how to use our hands so I'm going to teach you how to use our hands And this can start from the ages of even two. Two Two-year-olds love tearing paper. It's the best, especially Christmas time. So all we're going to do is we're just going to tear paper. So you're just going to grab your piece of paper and just tear it in half. Awesome. Everyone has good hand grip. I love it. Excellent. Very good. What you'll see for children who aren't ready, children who go for this activity and it's too complex, they're not ready, they'll use their elbows. You'll straight away see this. What that's showing me is they're still stuck in gross motor development. Their big shoulder muscles and their big elbow muscles are trying to do the work of a fine motor activity. What we want to see children be able to do is keep these three fingers out of the way, not involved at all. They're just relaxing there and all of the movement is coming from my pincer grip, from my first finger and my thumb, which is what you all did. You all did great if we see a child who has this elbow movement we can be pretty certain that they wouldn't be ready for a pencil
1: because what
0: you'll see them do is they'll write with their elbow rather than writing with the movement of their fingers so with any stage of development we've got to take the children through those stages one stage at a time before rushing them into an activity Whether they're two or whether they're five, the children still have to go through that beautiful order of development without missing too many steps. Because if we skip those really important steps, then we're actually hindering our development, not promoting it. So I'm just going to show you again one more time. What we're looking for is we want children to just use their fingers. Their fingers are relaxed, not their elbows, and not with a really clenched fist. Yeah, thumbs up if that sounds all right. Feeling good? We've got a few nods. Beautiful. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. I'll just share my screen again. Sorry, I keep moving a camera. I've got another little camera set up here. So one sec. So I'll take you back to my screen. Here we go. Beautiful. So this explains why I want you to always meet the children where they're at. So if we, they might be ready for the number activity, for example, they might know their numbers and they might want to start writing their numbers. But if we haven't gone through all the stages of scribbling, tearing paper, then we're going to use the pencil in really unusual ways and our muscles will just learn the wrong way and it will become a habit. Not for all children, but for a lot of children, we could be creating habits but then become harder work to undo down the track. Versus we'll do it through a process. So what I tend to do first is I present a sensory option. It might be rice play, sand play, whatever you can really do at the moment, even Ziploc bags. So if you have a Ziploc bag with shampoo in it, whatever idea you possibly can have, but try and go through these four stages. The first stage is just a free play. It's like scribbling on paper. We want to see if the children will just scribble on paper or the children might be one step ahead from that and then they'll go to the next phase which is drawing something in the sand. I tend not to worry about what that drawing is. I just want to see if they'll put shapes to the paper. I want to see if they'll scribble in certain lines, if they'll draw circles. We're looking at where they're at. Then we go into the pre writing shape. So, the one down the bottom with the yellow cross, a cross like that is a pre writing shape. If you need, you can, uh, I've got a pre writing free PDF. Just let me know. Um, I'll, give, I'll give you my details at the end and just, I can email it straight to you. It's got all of these different pre writing shapes on it. We want them to learn how to draw a circle, how to draw a cross, how to draw a cross like an X, because that's a different action to a cross straight up and down. We want them to develop all of these pre-writing shapes before we then take them into writing letters. But what can sometimes happen with family pressures or societal pressure is we just take a child from the age of two to playing in sand and how it's making it fun to the age of four, now we expect them to be able to write their name in sand and we've missed all these other stages of development. So whatever sensory activity you provide, We want to make sure that it matches where the children are at. Sometimes what we do in kindergartens is we set up these four trays on the same table and we rotate through them with all of the children to make sure that every activity is at the developmental level that they need. So one is for free play, one is to draw a face, one is to do pre-writing and one is to do letter formation. It's just an idea that we want to make sure all of these literacy, early literacy elements are ticked off. We can then go into more advanced if once you get past the pre-writing stages. So up the top, I've got ideas where you can do raised salt painting. So what I love there is you put glue. They can scribble it or they can write letters on it wherever they're developmentally at. You put the glue on and then you sprinkle salt and then you put food colouring on it. It's fantastic. Kids love that. The reason why I like the salt painting or salt play is it instantly gets us into sprinkling behaviour. Why that's important is I'm going to show you now. So hold that thought of our picture up the top left and I'll show you with our scissors. So now it's our time to get our scissors. So if you could please grab your scissors, if anyone has some scissors. Awesome. Sorry, I keep getting up and down on a Saturday, (laughs) making you work hard. Awesome. Just grab some scissors and I'll wait for you to come back. Has everyone got scissors? Everyone who's around? Awesome. I'm seeing scissors. That's fantastic. Very good. All right. Have you got some scissors there? Beautiful. Beautiful. If you can show me, see if you can even come, see if I can see some of you. What's the typical way you see children holding scissors? What are some of the ways you see children holding scissors? Yes, <laughs> like this. Yeah, you get unusual. Yeah, you get all sorts of crazy scissor use. <laughs> That's right. What happens there is we may never have had exposure to scissors at home. I know that some families who aren't in early childhood are very nervous about their two-year-old or three-year-old having scissors, so we don't have scissors at home. So then the child comes to early learning and they get access to scissors and they do all sorts of crazy things with them. So what I always encourage children to do before they even touch a pair of scissors is they start with tearing paper and they start with sprinkling because what I need the hands to be able to do is I need the hands to be able to function without these last two fingers doing anything. Because when I'm cutting with scissors, I only use three fingers to cut. These two fingers do nothing. But when a child hasn't developed that skill yet, they'll try and use, you'll see the last two fingers will sort of rhythm with the rest of the hand. They'll try and use their whole hand. That's a sign. That they're not yet developed enough to be able to use scissors so we've got to go back a step and do things like tearing paper right these two fingers are tucked out of the way and we're going to, need to go back a step to when we sprinkle salt or sprinkle sand because that sprinkling action is these two fingers can't sprinkle because if I use these two fingers when I sprinkle I actually dump all of the sand or all of the salt at the same time Or if I'm developing the real skill of sprinkling, it's just the first three fingers that sprinkle it because these fingers are holding the rest of the sand or the rest of the salt that's in their hand. So when we look at any sort of scissor use, if you have your piece of paper there, if you still have your piece of paper, we want to be able to cut strips of small pieces, small strips, one at a time. See, and we want the fingers here to be tucked in. These two fingers shouldn't be involved in scissor use at all. And all we want children to do to start off with is just cutting strips one by one, developing that practice and that confidence with scissor use. But what I sometimes see is we go from not using much, many scissors to then trying to cut shapes or then trying to cut out our name but we haven't even developed being able to cut simple strips yet. So something for you to think about. We can sometimes want to rush children through each stage of development, but even more so at the moment when our children are on iPads a lot and and on phones a lot, they need more fine motor practice than they ever have needed before. So being really mindful of these last two fingers, <laughs> try and... See children to not use them, and then you'll know that they're ready for the next stage. So I'll go back to my screen so now this will make sense for you. Sorry, one sec. If you have any questions too, feel free to use the chat box. We can always see how we go. I can try and answer them for you. The other thing that I love about so the one in the next picture in the middle is a little one with letters inside shells, and then the shells are inside rice. That's two tactile sensations joined into into one and you've got a literacy component in there as well. I love that the rice could also have a, an olfactory or a smell component because you could put peppermint oil in there or you could put lemon oil, you could put even dishwashing liquid to make it slimier, you could put all sorts of things in the rice after COVID of course. But all of these things could be in the rice or even if the children had one portion each. I'm sure you guys have worked out amazing ways to get around good old COVID at the moment. What I love about rice play is that there's all other elements that you can add to it. It doesn't have to just be plain old rice, which I'm sure you're already doing. And when we document what the children have done, when we put our observations in, please add the descriptions of what you've even had in the rice. And if you've put in... The smell of lavender then one of your amazing outcomes is that you've used the olfactory system or the smell system to ignite the brain you've used the tactile system to ignite the brain so you're really proving to us because we do this every day we think we've just provided children with a tray of rice but to families and to other service providers you're doing so much more than that in regards to their sensory play so the way we document it, we can sometimes make it a little bit more detailed because what happens in that rice tray with this child sensations is more than you probably already realise. Another thing that we sometimes use in the next picture, I think that's sand, the little scavenger hunt, letter hunt. What I love about hiding letters, if we are at that stage of knowing our letters, is we're using the skill of object permanence. I'm sure if you pop up your hand if you know object permanence, You know the word object permanence, got a couple, beautiful. This is more for our two year old group and our five year old group. So object permanence is the ability to know that I'm still behind this piece of paper. Object permanence is understanding that our world is a 3D space. So this piece of paper is actually a 3D space. It's not just 2D and I'm in a 3D world because I can come and go from behind a piece of paper. It's pretty cool. Children who are 18 months should have this down pat. They should be able to understand object permanence down pat. It's how you know when all of a sudden you come out from peekaboo and you don't scare them. So when we play peekaboo with a little one and they don't get scared, we know, yes, fantastic. Object permanence is going great. If they know that I've hidden their favorite toy behind the piece of paper, object permanence, a child having strong object permanence, will know to come and find the scissors. They'll want to try and peek behind my paper to see what's behind there because they're living in a 3D world. It's a great skill to have. The challenge we have at the moment is a lot of our children are living in a 2D world on an iPad. They're not living in a 3d world we used to play in cardboard boxes and we used to play outside and climb trees we have a generation of children who are living in a 2d world on an ipad my children use ipads but they also have to explore they have to turn a cardboard box into a car they have to be able to do scavenger hunts around the house but we need to encourage this more than ever to make sure that all children have the ability of object permanence, knowing that something can be hidden and we want to go and find it. The reason what I love about hiding letters in sand is you're checking if children want to try and get through the tray to find what's in the tray. You may have some children who will walk straight past the tray because they think that there's just rice or sand in the tray. And those children, you really want to make sure that they have the ability of object permanence. A reason why we want object permanence for literacy is, I'll pretend that this is a book. I have the front cover of my book. And if we have object permanence, you'll get children come up. If you stall with a book for a little while, some children will come up and they'll want to see what's next. They have object permanence. They know that inside this book, there is more. Inside this book, it's a 3D world. There's more to see in here. So they'll want to come and peekaboo in to open up that book. But children who don't have object permanence, whether they might have a disability, they might have developmental delay, they'll just sit there until a new page appears and then they'll get distracted because a new page has appeared and then the next page will come and it's another little surprise every time a page turns with no desire to see what else is around the corner. So when we look at object permanence, if you've got your team that work with it a lot in that 18-month-old, two-year-old space, Try and use those same strategies in the kindergarten space to make sure that all of the children have those this skill because it's a very important skill to make sure children have. Very important. I also wanted to include that literacy doesn't have to just include your hands. So I'm sorry for the person who doesn't like sponges. I know I have them on my, my page. We'll just ignore that one. <laughs> um, the bubble wrap with the little kid jumping on the bubble wrap. We could turn that into a scribble activity, where they scribble things with their feet on the bubble wrap. We could turn that into a literacy activity by putting letters underneath where they stomp with the bubble wrap onto different letters. The importance of brain development is we don't just stick to using our hands. We want children to also use their feet. Why I love children using their feet is that the message from the brain to the feet is even further than what it is from the brain to the hands. So you're building up the brain pathways even stronger when you do something with your feet. So it's really important that when we think about our literacy activities, we're also doing things with our feet. And we're feeling different things through our feet. So the little one here stomping on bubble wrap, it looks like it's got a shaving cream or something underneath it, will feel different to the little man who's jumping onto the masking tape letters. Those masking tape letters and the floorboards could be cold and the shaving cream could be warmed up a little bit and the shaving cream could be warm. And you're giving the whole body these new sensations just through two different activities. But sometimes we only think about our hands. I'm sure you guys think about it a lot more than families. But if we can get this information to families so families can think about the importance of the whole body playing, not just our hands. What I love about sponges, is that, um, as much as some of us don't, is I love that sponges provide proprioception and tactile at the same time. When I stomp on a sponge or when I squeeze a sponge, my body gets that feeling of proprioception and that feeling of tactile because tactile is giving us the feeling of soft or cold or wet and proprioception is giving us that feeling of spongy and it's really important for kids to feel that as much as they possibly can. Because when we have good proprioception, we know when our body is being gentle and we know when our body is being rough. And sponges are great to practice because we can gently squeeze a sponge or we can firmly squeeze a sponge and we can talk about how our hands are being gentle and our hands are being rough. And that's really great for children's overall social development and just being able to understand their bodies really well. I'll go to the next one for a sec. The next thing that I really wanted to talk about is numeracy. So, and you're doing really well. I know it's really late on a Saturday afternoon. You're still awake, so that's good. (laughs) You're doing great. Numeracy actually begins with patterns. So what I like for people to understand is that when people think maths or numeracy, they straight away think numbers, drawing numbers, counting. But a lot of you already know Numeracy starts with patterns and color sorting, really. That's how we start children to understand that the world comes in patterns. Because what the reason why we want to deal with patterns first is when we look at even my twins are now in grade two. In grade two, they're learning about adding and subtracting and they're learning about times tables. Times tables is a pattern, even numbers, odd numbers. There's a pattern that when you times things by nine, the ones column goes down maths is a pattern so if we can develop children as young as we can in learning patterns they're going to have really strong skills in that numeracy space as they get to school so i'll show you a few ideas here so sorry to the person who doesn't like velcro but my suggestion was this top left picture would be velcro so we cut out different shapes out of felt or paper we put them in a pattern and we encourage the children to finish the remaining the remaining ones what i love about velcro is the sound that you get when you rip it off now some people don't like that sound but that children who may like the sound of patting or children who may like the sound of music may love velcro for the sound of velcro so typically you might have a child who would usually avoid this sort of activity because it's quiet and we like noise but if we made it really noisy they might start to come to this play space and get involved in this type of activity so even to the, the resources that you use and the materials that you use can all have a part to play. Buttons in the next one in the ice cube tray are fantastic because buttons make a sound when you drop them. Buttons make a sound when you source, search through them. The sound of buttons can really encourage children to get involved. We want to be able to sort out colors and counts from as young as we can. So then we get the idea of numbers. It's all great that children can draw a number, they can draw how old they are but if that number makes no sense to them then there's no point knowing how old they are. It's great that my daughter who's four, Phoebe knows that she's four but what does four even mean? Why does she need to know what the number four is? So what we show her is she has four teddy bears, there's four spoons, there's four cups, there's four balls. It's important for her to know that four means something. And four is the amount of things rather than just getting children just to draw numbers because that's what society is expecting maths to be. Sometimes when we think about numeracy and literacy, we think that they can only be done at a tabletop with really fine motor resources. Lots of activities out there are all fine motor based. It's so important to still give gross motor options to children as well. I don't know if any of you watch my social media, but last night I found just a stat that horrified me. There's 57,000 children, Australian children each year, not physically ready for school. 57,000, it's actually 57,605 children not developmentally ready for school. Massive. But what we tend to see is children like my son would avoid things like jumping and hopping and skipping and climbing because it was hard work for him. He'd still much prefer to sit on the couch on his iPad. So it's our role even more so now to look at how can we involve fine motor, but more importantly, how can we involve gross motor in all of the activities that we provide? So something as simple as our butcher's paper with making a pattern can be great. The next one that I love that's okay, Diana. Sorry, Diana just said she needs to leave. That's okay. Not a problem. The next activity that we have here with the safety cones is they're putting rings on top of it. You could turn that into a mathematical pattern activity. You could increase the amount of gross motor involvement in this activity by making the rings further away from the cones. So the children have to hop to collect the rings or they have to jump to go and collect the rings or they have to crawl to collect the rings and the rings are providing maths or numeracy because you're providing it in a pattern or you're putting two on one cone and three on another cone but adding that extra gross motor and adding that extra physical activity component is gonna be important not just for their literacy and numeracy but important for their physical health as well. It's seeing how you can expand it even more than just a simple activity. The one that I love about with the the pasta bracelets is you can create patterns in that as well. So colored patterns, you could create how many many there are on the bracelet. You could measure everyone's wrists. So kids love to measure my wrist with a pipe cleaner and how many pieces of pasta does my wrist need? How many pieces of pasta does your wrist need? You're starting those early numeracy interests but while still making it fun. That's what I love. This next one is uh, just, again, I'm going back to that concept of if we're going to teach them numbers, what are we teaching them numbers for? So sometimes families will want to say, well, my child can count to 10. But what do we want to do with that? I like my child, Phoebe, to count to three because I like Phoebe to set out the table for my three kids. So she counts three bowls and it becomes a functional reason for learning about numbers. Where if we're just finding a number, we know it's the number eight, or we're just finding a number, we know it's the number two, it's great, but what are we going to do with that? So what I love about when we hide numbers in different sensory objects is we can then use those Hummer beads, which is what's in that blue bowl, and we can find the number eight, and then we can count out eight Hummer beads, or we can find the number two, and we can go around and find two red objects. But if we can teach the numbers component, but then it has to have a meaning behind it. It's going to give children more interest. Same with this beanbag activity. I love beanbag activity. What I tend to do from here is I'll find the number four and then I'll find the number four beanbag. But what can we do with the number four beanbag? Can we throw it in the air four times? Can we wrap it around our tummy? four times? Can we hold it on our head for four seconds? It's trying to give children a number and then give them a functional activity that they can do with it. So the number has meaning. Color sorting is fantastic for starting to develop that space. I love that these are ice cubes. It makes it even more sensory for the tactile system. While we want to start sorting things into colors is we want to start to work on multiplication. Now, getting a three-year-old to work on multiplication isn't necessary, but they're starting to learn groups of. They're starting to learn that I have two purple, I have one green, or I have six bowls. And if I give one into each bowl, I have six ice cubes. It's trying to develop without pushing it. It's just you might even have some children in your classroom who can already do those math skills. You can set up this beautiful ice tray activity one child will love to draw with the ice on the concrete another child will like to color sort the ice cubes into all the different bowls and then the other child might like to count them it's a great open-ended activity that can provide access to learning for children at all different levels and it's writing about that in your observations as well how much success has come from such what we think is a simple activity but how much learning comes from that for all different ranges of children. So thinking about that, that's one of my favorites. The next one is where we roll dice and then we do an action. So again, you're giving the numbers meaning. So we roll a five and we roll a two, we add them together, it equals seven, and then we blink our eyes seven times, or we jump on the spot seven times, or we spin spin on the spot seven times. It's giving an idea of numbers can be fun because numbers mean something. For children who aren't quite there yet, we still get them to sort out. So this little man's obviously a lot younger. So he's sorting things into colors and shapes. We still need that. It's not that we don't want children. We want children to advance straight away into counting. It's just showing you that numeracy is more than just numbers and writing numbers. But I'm sure you already knew that. The number line I love, so whenever you can draw this, this is a little girl in the cute little tutu. The number line is fantastic because you can teach just counting from 1 to 10. You can add skipping in here or jumping or spinning or crawling. What I love is for those children that are quite advanced and definitely school ready, they can start to do addition and subtraction. They can start to jump forward two times and add equals two and then jump backwards one time and that equals one it's allowing that the same activity that's provided to the whole class can be differentiated for the children for the children that are at all of these different levels I'm just going to get out the play-doh now so if you've got your play-doh I'm going to show you all of the exciting things that we can do with play-doh so I'll close this down for one sec so if you've got your play-doh there Here we go. Beautiful. Some of us have Play Doh. If you don't, it's okay. Got some? You're doing so well. It's so late in the afternoon. I can see some of you playing with it, which is awesome. <laughs> if you don't like Play Doh, it's okay. We can use clay. If you don't like clay, we can use blue tack. Some people like to use blue tack. I know the smell can be quite repulsive for some people. So, ah, good job. I love it. If you don't like the smell, make your own and add an essential oil that you enjoy. What I love about Play-Doh is that we can tear it. So if you just tear it, tearing it's great. What I love about Play-Doh is you can really start to teach children hard movement and soft movement. We want children to learn that their hands can be strong and squish it really hard. Or their hands can be soft and just... Hold it, but not squash it. Why we want children to learn hard and soft movement is we want to teach the children that when we come to a fine motor activity, for example, we're cutting with scissors, we want soft hands. But when we're doing things like kneading bread or we're cooking or we're rolling a ball, we want hard hands. And it's starting to teach the children that proprioception of how much pressure to apply to the play-doh it's fantastic for their sensory play but it's a real fine motor activity if if you make a sausage for a sec so if you grab just a little bit and we make a sausage what i love showing children is if i squash it too hard it goes funny so that's hard movement but if i do it nice and even and nice and slow and nice and smooth it's soft and smooth We can use that same analogy for children if they're being a bit rough at mat time. We can use that same analogy for children if they're pushing other people out in the yard, as children do. It's trying to teach them what is hard movement and what is soft movement, what is rough and what is gentle. And what I love about Play-Doh is you can really show it so easily when it's hard and when it's soft play. So if you can teach that in a morning circle session or if you can teach it in a small group Play-Doh session, it's a skill that you can apply in other areas of your classroom management. The fun activities which I'll share with you now, there's some fun activities I love. Here we go. We start with Play-Doh just like we start with paper. So we start with mark-making, putting random shapes onto the Play-Doh. Or we start by tearing it, going back to the basics of tearing. I see Play-Doh in a way as paper. It's just more sensory. What I love about mark-making is, again, it's showing them that they can communicate a message to me on Play-Doh. They can do it on paper. They can do it on the chalk outside, putting their fingers into something to create a message has power and has excitement. What I also love about Play-Doh is that we can create letters with it. So if you have children that love letters, while one person at the Play-Doh station is mark-making because that's where they're at, the other child who may be a bit more advanced is forming letters. Same play space, same learning resource, but completely different activity. So both children can interact together. But both children can work on an activity where they're at. So I also like using the the, uh, golf tee. So golf tees are great for drawing into Play-Doh. The golf tee doesn't get covered in, if you get the plastic ones, plastic golf tees don't get covered in Play-Doh at the end. They're super easy to wipe off. And I love the length of them. So this little man who's a lefty here holding the golf tee on the blue Play-Doh you can't hold it in an unusual position because the pencil, because the golf tee is so small. Sorry, I dropped my pen. <coughs> what some children do with a with a big pen is they hold it from the top. That's too small. He has to come down the bottom and use it properly. So golf tees in play Doh are fantastic. They can draw paths. They can write letters. They can do all sorts of things. Once they've drawn their path or written their letter, then we can fill it in with fun toothpicks or noodles or pieces of straw. We want to expand the child's ability to be at that activity for more than what they would be six months ago. What I love when we provide more resources into Play-Doh is a child may have originally come to the Play-Doh station for a one-minute activity, writing the letter D. But then you've given more options. So now that five-minute activity of writing the letter D has become a 10-minute activity of them then decorating the letter D. You're increasing their focus. And they think they're playing because it smells good and it feels good, but you're actually improving their concentration span and their ability to focus, all in the same activity. What I love down the bottom is we do. you would already be doing this. You'd be forming your numbers. You'd start to get children to form the letter three and then find three things to put on the number three or form the number four and then find four pom-poms to put with the number four. So all these things you're mostly doing, but when we observe it or we document it, it's all these finer details that you can chat about. So for example, Johnny made the letter J for Johnny's name, but he made it out of Play-Doh that smelt like lavender and lavender helped to relax his sensory system. That's different to just writing, Johnny played with Play-Doh today. So trying to be a little bit more advanced in how we describe things can make us feel more fulfilled. Because it's it's turned from just a Play-Doh activity into a whole learning experience. It makes us feel more fulfilled. And it obviously gives the families more feedback so that they can feel more feedback as well. And I think that is the last slide. So thank you for listening to my Sensory Play recording from when I was talking about at an early childhood conference. I hope you got some great ideas and thought about the Sensory Play from a new perspective. I'd love to hear your feedback, your questions, your comments on my Facebook or Instagram pages. They're both at Play, Move, Improve. Or if you have iTunes or Spotify, please make sure you leave some feedback and a review because it helps my small business grow Any questions at all, please reach out. Always here to listen and to help. Thank you again for being here today and for listening and taking the time to learn more about sensory play. Take care.